Hello, how are we doing? Thanks very much for choosing to listen to us today. This is the Not The Top 20 podcast, the Monday pod sponsored by Betfair. What we're doing today is talking about a very busy weekend in the championship and then touching a little bit on some of the FA Cup first round action which impacted Leagues 1 and 2 over the weekend. I'm Ali Maxwell with me, George Ellick. George, are you excited to get your teeth stuck into this today? Yeah, I, I'm, me and you both always talk about getting our teeth stuck into the action. Mm. I wonder if there's anything else we get stuck in. Every time I say it, I realise it, that's not a phrase. I've completely made that up. You either get your teeth into it or you get stuck into the action. But I think I've mixed the two there with this phrase and I'm hoping it becomes you know, a part of the, the English language. I quite want to massage the action, get my thumbs into it, really kind of coax some knots out of, out of what we saw on the weekend. That's how I see it. That sounds nice. See, we're both coming up with our own idioms there. Idiot, you might say. A <laughs> couple of idiots. We're going to start in the championship uh, because we've got managerial movement. So that's where we will begin. Uh, the, the match was West Bromwich Albion 1, Middlesbrough 1 at the Hawthorns. And I'll just touch on the match itself before we uh, get stuck into teeth-wise, the action uh, in the in the dugout, particularly the away dugout. This was a game in which Middlesbrough, Neil Warnock's Middlesbrough, were miles the better side in the first half, for sure. And they led as well through the 18-year-old Josh Coburn. Uh, two and two for him. Any 18-year-old striker scoring goals in England's second tier is going to be exciting. Uh, he's tall. He has got three goals this season, all different types of goal. And he scored a towering header last season as well, which stood out. The joint top scorer amongst championship players under 20, teenagers, if you will, uh, this season with three. Uh, Fabio Carvalho, Tyrese Dolan, Harrison Burrows and Ruben Colwell all on three goals as well. All of them players to keep an eye on. Uh, in the second half, West Brom had a spell uh, early on in the second period where their pressure paid off. Uh, very West Brom specific pressure. A lot of set pieces for Middlesbrough to deal with, which they mostly did well. But uh, a loose ball bounced into the box and Grady Diangana smashed it home for 1-1. Borough rallied, though, in fairness to them. A lot of teams at the Hawthorns might fold at that point. Um, psychologically, it must be tough to be ahead and be pegged back. But... They held them off. Uh, and in fact, Burrow only missed out on the three points thanks to a brilliant Sam Johnston save in injury time. Uh, for West Brom, because we're mainly focusing on Burrow here, this result was a problem, or rather the continuation of a growing problem. The team were booed off by the Baggies fans. Uh, the third place team this is. And that has sparked a lot of discussion within the West Brom fan base about Val Ball, about style of play, about aesthetics versus results. Uh, we're not going to get stuck into that today, but I would just point you in the direction, if it's something you're interested in, uh, of Steve Madeley's piece in The Athletic. And here's a snippet. Welcome to West Brom right now where the tone and mood are more at odds with results and points than most supporters can ever remember. Essentially, the results are good, but spend a match day afternoon or evening at the Hawthorns and you'd be hard-pressed to know it. It's a frustrated place, an angry place, a disillusioned and divided place. That's something for us to monitor over the next few weeks, but that's not the story here. George, Saturday morning before the game, the story broke in the Daily Mail that Neil Warnock was on the verge. Uh, we were tipped off, as were many, that Chris Wilder had been lined up, was on his way in. Sure enough, that was confirmed yesterday, Sunday, after eight months out of the game. Chris Wilder is now the Middlesbrough manager, back managing at championship level. What do you make of, of the fact that Warnock's been shifted out uh, quite so swiftly? Well, you say quite so swiftly. Um, in Neil Warnock's post-match press conference well his post-match interview he said that he'd heard about Chris Wilder coming in three weeks ago so I don't know how swift it was I think um a, a good run of form probably delayed the inevitable I think um 
yeah, Neil Warnock's been a dead man walking, as it were, in footballing terms for a while now. So I don't know if it is that swift. I think it's the nature of the beast, basically. Um, you know, I've been fairly vocal in saying that I think Chris Wilder would be a good appointment for a club down the road from Middlesbrough who have aspirations to be a, a top six Premier League club in, in Newcastle. I think, you know, if you look at the, the man they've appointed in, any, in Eddie Howe, I think the achievements of Chris Wilder um, dwarf house and that's because they've done very similar things except Wilder started his journey in non-league how in league two Eddie Howe spent a lot of money to get to the Premier League Chris Wilder spent very little and did the four promotions with three different clubs um, and arguably his first season at Premier League level with Sheffield United was more impressive than anything Eddie Howe managed uh, at Bournemouth so I think that you've got Middlesbrough and Newcastle appointing a same manager in the same week, both with completely different aspirations and budgets. And I reckon Middlesbrough might have got the better of the two. So when a manager like that becomes available, when um, Neil Warnock, your manager, is in his mid-70s and, yes, did an OK job for a while, but realistically has had the mid-table for the, for the duration of his of his tenure, I don't think it's particularly harsh. I, you know, There's no denying that Neil Warnock didn't deserve to lose his job um i think if they'd sacked him and then spent three weeks trying to find a replacement then it would have been unfair but it's an upgrade it's quite clearly an upgrade and, and i can see why they did it alan nil comes in alongside wilder nil was there well initially actually chris wilder was anna nil's assistant at berry uh, about 20 years ago in his first coaching role um after actually he managed halifax before that but and, and Alfredton before that as well um, but his first EFL coaching role. And then they weren't together when Wilder was at Oxford, but Neil was his, his assistant at Northampton and at Sheffield United. And I know a lot of the people, especially uh, at Northampton, who were close to it, and at Blades as well, to be fair, credit um, Neil with a lot of the uh, innovative tactical stuff that we've seen at both. You know, at Oxford's, you know, talking from experience here, whilst Chris Wilder did an incredible job and was known as the messiah for most of his um, tenure at the club, when he left, he left Oxford in third place, I think it was, in League Two and resigned due to crowd unrest. You mentioned the situation at West Brom and Valerian Ishmael. It was it was basically the same. R results were very good. The football was, was atrocious and fans had, had kind of lost the will to, to watch that side. The same cannot be said of his cobbler side. The same cannot be said of the Sheffield United side, where both of them were encouraged to play very attacking, uh, quite attractive football. It's interesting to note here with Borough that we saw the overlapping centre-backs. I'm not convinced he's necessarily going to come in. You know, that isn't his way of playing per se. He's played a lot of systems in the past. But in Johnny Howson and, and Paddy McNair, you've got two guys who are very, very comfortable playing at centre-back or playing in centre-midfield. going to have the ball-playing tendencies to be able to do that. So maybe he will. If I was a Borough fan, I'd be incredibly excited. I, I just don't see... There are very, very few managers who have such an impressive track record of taking over clubs and immediately improving their fortunes. You know, in a way, I'd, I'd compare him to a, an EFL, Antonio Conte. Um, how many times, how many other interesting current affairs in football can I cross-reference to this Chris Wilder um, appointment? Well, of course, he's got Josh Coburn up front, who is the Erling Braut Haaland of the, the championship. So, you know, he's got, he's got a superstar there. Uh, just going back to Warnock, you mentioned it. Um, you you kind of gave it a pretty succinct overview, but just in case it's the last time we have a talk about Neil Warnock, the initial objective was to save a club that had somehow found themselves quite close to dropping out of the championship, which was uh, pretty much 
uh, well, it was it was unfeasible, or at least it felt unfeasible until Jonathan Woodgate was appointed and, and things really didn't go well. So th- there's there's quite a nice mixture that I've seen from Borough fans of feeling like this is almost perfect. Uh, they can be very grateful to for the job that Neil Warnock did. I think almost everyone has loved having Neil Warnock manage their side, enjoying enjoying the character of him and the way that he represents the club. Um, the, certainly the local media have enjoyed him as much as, as all local media teams have enjoyed covering Neil Warnock's sides because he gives them a lot uh, to work with. But... In terms of this season, as you mentioned, you know they feel very mid-table. They had a run of three wins in a row, and two weeks ago we made it very clear that just because they'd beaten the three worst teams in the league didn't necessarily mean they were they were on course for the playoffs. And sure enough, the recent form has, has showed them to be at the level that I think they basically have been for a while now. So it seemed unlikely, having achieved the obvious and first objective that they were going to be able under Warnock to achieve the next one, which would be a playoff place, I suppose, or at least challenging a little more confidently for the the playoff places. Now, Warnock, and maybe this is a defence mechanism, uh, given that it it seems he knew that someone else was being lined up, Chris Wilder more specifically. And, And in the last few weeks, I've been a little disappointed with how Warnock has used the media to take shots at those within Middlesbrough, not least uh, in his parting interview, when he mentioned having no help from behind the scenes. Uh, He sort of... (laughs) quite an unnecessary line I thought where he said the chairman himself has told me that he's disappointed about how it's gone that that seems a bit unnecessary for me you know that that is the sort of thing that could create a bit of tension within the club that really you'd, you'd want to avoid um, whether it's true or not I've always taken that as a shot at uh, head of football Kieran Scott who was appointed um, not too long ago and who it always felt like an uneasy marriage with Neil Warnock and, and certainly with the the mixed uh, the mixed style of recruitment over the summer, you, you could sense that this wasn't something that was necessarily going to be long-term. Lee Peltier and Sol Bamba came into the club very much Warnock Warriors and have performed admirably in that role. Uh, but so did James Lair Saliki and Sporar. And there were links to, to plenty of other players that didn't feel like the sort of players that Neil Warnock has signed in his last few jobs. And he leaves with saying... I needed three or four more players. And most managers think that, don't they? And and I'm not sure I give that much credence to it, to be honest. I'm I'm more sympathetic to the injury issues that he's had rather than needing, obviously, three or four more players. But he seems to think that Chris Wilder will get those players. And it'll be interesting to see how Wilder goes. Because, George, the the thing that can't we can't really get away from, I suppose, is that in terms of Chris Wilder, the obvious red flag is at Sheffield United, where he was genuinely the messiah, for all sorts of reasons, um, the, the overriding reason why he left the club and why it finished the way it did was not really their poor performance in the Premier League last season. It was more to do with a power struggle, you know, similar to what we're talking about with Warnock, with Wilder wanting to to have the sort of, I, I suppose, old school style absolute control and certainly when it comes to recruitment. So that is just a balance that will be interesting to follow. Uh, of course, managers can adapt, right? And particularly when you're out of work and you're going into a club, maybe to start with at least, you don't really have the sway to be throwing your weight around on that front. But it is something to, to, to flag up, I guess. One of my, as you know, one of my biggest pet peeves around general football discourse is how often at Premier League level, especially managers are accredited or criticised on their recruitment record when the further you got the pyramid from League Two, League One, Championship, um, the Premier League, the more money clubs have to spend on different facets of their backroom staff. So you are far more likely to get a manager in League One 
who has final say or has a majority say in terms of what's going on. You know, he may sit at the head of the table in, in recruitment meetings compared to the Premier League, where that's going to be incredibly unlikely. So Chris Wilder's journey at Sheffield United was um, a bit different because he came into a League One club and probably had that kind of autonomy that he wanted. And with success comes a change in structure. And that effectively, you know, there was always, even in the championship, there were issues between him and the ownership. And that shift towards him having less of a say in terms of transfer activity caused a, a big divide in terms of the power struggle at the club. You have to assume that in the relationships, you know, in the press this week, Kieran Scott has said that he doesn't know Chris Wilder. He never met Chris Wilder until they first spoke about him joining Middlesbrough. You have to assume that there has been a clear hierarchical structure already put in place in terms of how the club is going to be run and that Chris Wilder's had to bend to that because frankly if one person you know Kieran Scott has hired him if if Wilder has an issue with the way that, that they've set out the way that the club's going to work it's going to be Wilder who's the one who's going to go not Scott so you, you have to assume that he's bought into it um, and I would also say that Wilder's you know as big a fan of, of him as I am his recruitment record in the EFL was was patchy. You know, there was always this thing that I always spoke to you about, I spoke about in the podcast back at the time where he would just go, no matter how his team were doing in January, he couldn't help himself but go out and spend loads of money, sign up five different strikers, only about two of which would ever actually play. He couldn't really help himself. So I, I think this will be different. I'm, I'm sure he's aware of his responsibilities as manager of Middlesbrough for all we know maybe Kieran Scott said to him yeah fine you know we will do it together we will have a, a relationship where you where you're involved I, I wouldn't be worried when we talk about this sort of thing I do get a bit uneasy with the way that Kieran Scott who has no right of reply realistically like Warnock uh, is able to use the press Kieran Scott can't do that in the same way it doesn't have the the credit in the bank doesn't have the contacts and dare I say it, it's it would be completely against his remit to do so so I always felt a little bit like he, he might have been slightly hard done by it. and also it creates this idea of him as has often been the, the way over the last 10-20 years in football and was thankfully moving away from it of him of being some sort of recruitment nerd who only wants to sign foreign players but doesn't understand what you need for the rigours of the championship um, I, I get very uneasy with that sort of framing so I'm, I mean I'm hoping for all parties that this can work quite well and we'll be talking about a club run smartly with the right structures in place and with a head coach Georgia in Wilder who just going back to the last time we saw him at this level took a Sheffield United team who on paper um, were not I don't think hugely dissimilar in terms of uh, talent level relative to the league to this Middlesbrough side and just absolutely blew the league away really and, and created such a robust team who were an absolute unit excellent defensively intense out of possession uh, and with plenty of ways to hurt you as well in, in that sort of 3-5-2 formation so that's what we're expecting to see you know they've played three at the back a lot this season so it's not hard to, to see where the players might fit into it I think there's a feeling that certain players might suit Wilder's game or might be trusted a little more or less by Wilder to play and he'll be benefited by the return of, of certain key men from injury like Boller and Dyke Steele and Dale Fry of course as well who've been missing for the last month or so. Last thing on this uh, and on that very front Jed Spence out on loan at Nottingham Forest plays right wing back and is very well suited to that role perhaps more so than right back in a four or certainly right wing. Chris Wilder on Saturday while Middlesbrough were drawing at West Brom was at the city ground watching presumably Jed Spence. So that's that. 
Uh, Chris Wilder in at Middlesbrough. International break now, so no game next weekend, but really exciting. And I will certainly miss Neil Warnock as a championship manager. I hope it's not the last time we see him in a manager's role. And maybe you and I will see him in a Sky Sports studio at some point this this season. That could be quite fun. Spare a thought for Onel Hernandez, by the way, on loan at Middlesbrough from Norwich, who had both managers sacked on the same day. Right, let's move into the the meat of the action. Bournemouth 4, Swansea 0 and Peterborough 0, Fulham 1. Why are we bunching those two together? Well, George, because with West Brom drawing, it was the top two pulling away again. And because in midweek, Bournemouth's first defeat of the season against Preston allowed Fulham to get a little bit closer to them. Uh, Fulham themselves in sensational form. Six wins in a row, scoring 21 goals and conceding just the one in that time. They went to Posh and eked out a fairly uncomfortable 1-0 win in the end. What, what did you make of this one? I'd go I'd go a lot further than saying it was fairly uncomfortable. I, I, I don't think they necessarily deserved it. Very uncomfortable. Would you go that far? I would say fortunate. Woo-hoo. Yeah, okay. I know. Having, you know, this is... Before Fulham fans get angry, this is me eating humble pie, having gone big on them on on the betting show. Um, yeah, this isn't the first time that we've seen Peterborough put in a, a really good performance against supposedly one of the league's better sides and got nothing for it. Um, I say supposedly. I think we can be we can rest assured that um, both West Brom and uh, Fulham are that. Um, they got but a yeah, nil-nil draw similar... against Bournemouth as well. I think Posh at uh, at London Road. So they've hosted the three best and they've scored none, but they've only conceded two goals and picked up a point when they probably deserve more. Um, you know, they had many chances here to, well, they had as many chances for them to score. Johnson Clark Harris was unlucky on a couple of occasions not to. Um, it was pretty poor defending for the goal, but except for that, Fulham didn't really offer too much going forward. Um, you know, Cornell made a couple of the okay saves, but then so did Rodak at, at the other end. So it was a, a pretty tight game. Now, Fulham dominated possession, as we probably expected, but there was a much better performance from Posh than, than I anticipated. Um, I think it was more a case of Posh making it very difficult for Fulham rather than necessarily Fulham uh, not turning up or, or being complacent after their recent good form. Um, so it's a you know it's a case of the, the better side over the course of the season winning, but it's, it's amazing how often this seems to happen where you get you get a, a supposed mismatch. Um, it, the playing field's a lot leveler than you expect, but the team who the favourite always seems to kind of marginally come out on top anyway. Um, but yeah, unfortunate for Posh, you deserved a point, I think. Mitro with his 20th goal of the season, a fairly trademark header, I would say. There just isn't anyone else in the league. I know we've said this before. It is becoming increasingly difficult to say new things about Mitro and to an extent Fulham as well. There's just no one in the league, no one I can really think of in the last few years particularly, that makes the most of crosses to the extent that Mitro does. Uh, And, you you know, there's probably an argument that in modern football in general, across the very top level as well, it's a a dying art. But uh, the way that he headed in Cabano's cross was uh, archetypal for Mitrovic and uh, 20 goals is astonishing. Uh, Touching on Cabano, who's, uh, you know, it was it was his bit of quality out wide to to find a space and find the cross onto the head of Mitro that, that helped Fulham um, sort of uh, get through this well put together posh defence uh, once and for all and Cabana has these little bursts doesn't he you know he's been playing at this level now for three or four years very specifically not playing at a higher level because pretty much when, when Fulham have gone up Cabana has been told to take the year off um, and he and my mind is cast back to the end of the 1920 season where 
He didn't score a goal in the championship for Fulham until match day 45 when he scored, uh, finished with three goals and an assist in the last two regular season games and then scored two of Fulham's three goals in the playoff semi-final, crucial in order to get them to the playoff final, which they won. So uh, he's a funny player, isn't he? You know, at those moments, it's not hard to see why uh, you would sign him, why you would play him. uh, And yet those moments have been few and far between realistically it'd be cool to see him put a run like this together but I'm not holding my breath is I guess what I'm saying overall uh, and Bournemouth made pretty light work of Swansea uh, in the end a good response to a defeat against Preston uh, in midweek and this one for me was about one of our favourite players in the league this season Jaden Anthony because although he scored the third and fourth goal it was his passing and how smart he is as a player and a creator uh, that unlocked the door for the first and second goals and that for me We spoke about him on Sky probably six weeks ago now or four to six weeks ago. Having done quite extensive video and stats research on Anthony, I was almost surprised at my findings, my conclusions, which was that the thing that makes him stand out is not his goal threat from a wide position. It's not his ball carrying from a wide position, like a lot of exciting inverted wingers, right right footers on the left side, namely Arno Danjuma. It's that he's their best passer. He's their smartest passer. That doesn't necessarily mean racking up the assist because of where he plays. What it does mean is consistently splitting defences and finding normally Philip Billing or the overlapping Jordan Zamora. Um, and if you watch back their first two goals, again, it's Anthony's, uh, it's his vision and his execution of forward passes that unlocks the door. And, and Double pre-assist, isn't it? The double pre-assist. There you go. Um, and I just think that is quite fun. It's quite unusual for someone in his position and dare I say it, someone of his age as well to be that smart as a player already. And it, it makes me think that he's got uh, a real career at a very, very high level. Now, they lost in midweek and, and I think the, the response was that playing Mepham at left back with Zemura injured for the first time was a quite a clear issue. It's not hard to understand why the, the flying left-footed attack-minded Zemura being replaced by the right-footed uh, converted centre-back Mepham would, would sort of clog you up a little bit. So Parker for this game turned over a new Leaf. Yeah, he did, yeah. Leaf Davis played, didn't he? On loan from Leaf. Leaf Davis, uh, yeah. And that, that sort of opened them up a bit. I must admit... Probably it's- should have given away a penalty. Yes, very arguably should have Ethan Laird being lively as, as ever. I must admit, Georgia, it's 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 hard to watch Swansea uh, when they play like they did in that second half. It actually reminded me a bit, and I, I wasn't the only one, of when MK Dons, under Russell mm. Martin, his last day in charge of MK Dons, the weekend before the start of the season, they went to Bournemouth to play a Carabao Cup game. They lost 5-0, and all the goals looked a bit like... Bournemouth's third and fourth goals where it, all, it looks a bit like a training game where they're not allowed to play a pass more than uh, sort of four yards and they, they just keep getting exploited. It, it, it is kind of tough to watch, but I suppose it's not one to get, you know, too wound up about or too carried away about because we're trusting the process, right? And and there's been more than enough over the last few weeks, as you yourself have said, to, to make you think, yeah, we're going in the right place here, even if we might get caught out a bit against Bournemouth. Yeah, I, I think you've just got to draw a line through it because... This was always going to be an interesting style clash, um, given that both teams like to play a certain way. But it was, you know, whenever Russell Martin's sides come up against another side who like to keep the ball, they normally still have more of the ball. And that was the case again here with Swansea dominating for large parts. And as soon as they went behind, you know, it was a pretty level game for the first 25 minutes. Arguably, you could almost say Swansea looked more likely to score and possibly should have had a penalty, as I mentioned. <clears throat> but as soon as Solanke put the 1-0 up, Bournemouth, 
it was always going to be difficult because of the amount of players that they've got who are they're able to to break on the counter. You know, you mentioned um, the ball over the top. I think it was for for Billing was the first, and then for Davis for the second from from Anthony it was just so easy. Uh, and then when you've got the, the the type of players they've got in running in, you know, Solanke's obviously a, a brilliant player to play on the counter as a centre forward. Um, it was always going to be difficult, and it kind of felt like the more Swansea tried to push, the easier it was for Bournemouth just to pick them off. And, and that's going to be very, very um, satisfying for Scott Parker to know that his side, who, if it's up to them, will control the ball and will keep possession. Not in the same style as Russell Martin. You know, they're not as possession heavy. They don't look to just to keep the ball for the sake of keeping it in, in order to control the game. But they are a team who like to control the game in midfield and, and fairly high up the pitch. They showed here that they're able to do it both ways. And they showed here that if they are going to come up against a side who want to have the ball, fine, let them have it. You don't have to press them particularly high. Um, just make sure when you do get the ball, you break fast and use the use the physical uh, strengths and then the you know the finishing ability. I mean, Ryan Christie could have scored a hat trick in the second half alone. Some some very very poor finishing from him. That second half was, given how highly I rate Swansea, that second half was just so easy for Bournemouth just to pick them off time and time again to expose the high line to 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 punish uh, Swansea for for overplaying. Um, at the back as well it was it was comfortable and it, it yeah I mean the 4-0 will hurt Swansea but it's it in no way flatters uh, a Bournemouth side who could have easily won by by more or been 4-0 up a lot earlier well let's crack on because there's still plenty to discuss I feel like our, our teeth have sunk into the championship but I'm not sure we've stuck our teeth into it yet and I don't certainly don't think it's got stuck in our teeth just yet but maybe <sighs> in the next segment where I want to talk about the two managerless clubs in the championship, uh, particularly, uh, or more specifically, rather, Barnsley, who lost 2-0 to Hull, and uh, Cardiff, who beat Huddersfield 2-1. George, why don't you start by talking me through what looked, from the highlights, like quite an entertaining Barnsley nil, Hull 2. Uh, the upshot of it was a huge, very valuable win uh, for Hull City, and dare I say it for their manager, Grant McCann, heading into the international break. Yeah, massive win. Uh, I overcomplicated things on the betting show when I said that Hull were going to start scoring goals soon and then tried to pick a goal scorer rather than just tipping up Hull to win. Um, <laughs> they, yeah, I mean, this was a performance. Um, I, I don't think anyone could have predicted them to be quite this breathtakingly good going forward. I mean, they were un, they were irresistible did, did, in attack. I, they didn't take my breath away. I mean, were you watching? <laughs> Uh, they were they were superb going forwards. They you know every time they went forward they looked dangerous. They're, they I mean they had 19 shots in the game, most of which were were, were in good areas. They uh, Lewis Potter looked a completely different player. He's been so short of confidence so far this season. Looked really impressive. Honeyman was at the centre of everything as he was last season when they were good. Sweet strike um, from Honeyman. Yeah, lovely, lovely strike. Um, it, it looked to me. I mean, I, I said it on the betting show. I think this Hull team are just a very, very good League One side. So when they play against sides who are about League One quality, they're quite good. We saw them batter posh a couple of weeks ago in the game they lost 2-1, missing a penalty at 1-0 and being the better side throughout. They come up against the Barnsley side here who've just won their first in 13 um, previously but come in with a caretaker manager. And I think there wasn't a great deal in that win um, from behind to suggest that it was it was a that they'd turned a corner. And Hull were by far the better team. Um, I, I think they're probably a side who are enjoying playing away from home more than playing at home, possibly given the home fans' issues with the manager, given the ownership issues, which you know don't. I mean, they predate uh, the rumored te- takeover, but the takeover itself, which is does not seem you know normally takeovers are met with 
a lot of hope, and especially when the current incumbents uh, are so unpopular as, as the Alams are at Hull. But I, I think there's a fair bit of concern amongst Hull fans about what this new Turkish owner uh, has planned for the club. Um, but all of that can be put aside when you're playing away from home. And, um, you know, the one the, the news or the reports coming out of the, the press in Hull is that Grant McCann's job is, is in no way under threat so long as the Alams are manager. Um, and that also plays into the idea that they might be might be better away from home. Deshaun Bernard was missing on the weekend and came back into the side. He's a very, very good player. He's kind of one of those players that seems to go up quite unnoticed, both in League Two last season at, at Salford and then this season at Hull, probably because he's playing for sides who are underachieving. But certainly he's someone whose presence at the back uh, massively improved them. It was it was just a, a very, very good performance. Definitely a performance that gives Hull something to, to build on and something to believe in. But I have a feeling that when they come up against better opposition again, we're probably going to see them re- revert to type. Barnsley's response to going behind was about as bad as, as, as it gets. And I suppose any hope that it was just the presence of Marcus Shop in the dugout that uh, was causing that, which of course was always unlikely, was put to rest here. So, I mean, George, I, I note that Mike Flynn is heavy favourite at the moment for the Barnsley job and I think second favourite for the Cardiff job. But he can't get both, can he? But for, for Barnsley in general, what are you making of, um, you know, do you suspect it's a case of they are just going to pluck someone from Europe, perhaps Austria again, and that that's why we don't know who it might be and there's no real guessing game being being played out through the betting odds? Or do you think maybe it's a, it's a good chance that Mike Flynn gets the opportunity? It feels to me like... It's quite important who they appoint and it's quite important how quickly they have, have an impact. So it's a it's an important time for the club. Yeah, I've, I've got no idea. Um, I think if Joe Lauman had overseen another victory on Saturday, I'm sure he'd have been fairly likely to, to have been in the mix for the job. Um, I'd be pretty surprised if they managed to attract him. But if I was in charge of Barnsley, I'd be putting a call into Daniel Farker pretty quickly uh, and seeing if he's got any interest in, in coming in because... You know, the way that the club's been set up, the the way that um, you know the way that Barnsley as a club have been run over the last few years isn't that different to Norwich, and uh, we know that he's a, a very very capable or more than capable championship manager. So I'd be surprised if they didn't put in a call. I'd also be quite surprised if Farker fancied it. You look at the other names on the list uh, of the betting list. Hannes Wolf has been linked to this post before. Um, I think he's been linked every time it's, it's ever been available. Is he even so real? Hannes anything- Wolf. I, feel I know like it's getting to the point where I, I, it's like he's a sort of football manager uh, regen. Um, he's just EFR constantly regen. linked to these jobs, but I've never seen every time the Barnsley job comes up, proof of his someone existence. someone requests him. <laughs> yeah. um, but Paul Warren is the other interesting one, um, where I mean he would be a a, a brilliant appointment. Um, whether or not he'd have any interest in leaving Rotherham, I don't know. He's just on. I'm only suggesting him because he's on that on the on the the kind of the odds sheet. Um, I mean, probably not, but he'd be the kind of appointment you'd be looking for. But I, I think it's, prob- you know, the, the club has changed since the appointments of Stendhal, uh, Struber and Ishmael. Um, so I, I don't think it's a given that they're going to pluck someone from Europe necessarily. Um, you know, Farker, I guess, fits both bills where he's he, he was that he was that guy and he was successful. And um, and now he's available. Uh, as I say, I'm sure that they um, I'm sure he wouldn't want the job. But in Flynn, you know, I joked over the weekend on Twitter saying that Mike Flynn probably was watching all these sackings, watching Dean Smith come available, watching Daniel Farr come available, thinking this isn't ideal. These are two guys who are probably going to leapfrog me for these jobs if if if, uh, if he is up for them. But um, yeah, as you say, it's all pretty quiet at the moment. 
maybe we'll suddenly see a name shoot to the top of the list in the next couple of weeks, well, next couple say, of days. You can say the same for Cardiff City, uh, who have now had three games under the caretaker charge of Steve Morrison. Uh, on the weekend, they got their first win under Steve Morrison. In fact, their first win for quite some time in the championship. It was a 2-1 win from behind at Huddersfield. And it means that Morrison's now overseen a come-from-behind draw against Stoke. And when I say come-from-behind, I mean 3-0 behind to draw 3-3. Then a a really poor, pretty insipid performance in midweek. They lost 1-0 at home to QPR. Not horrendous, but just not nearly doing enough. Certainly not a huge boost in in standards, I wouldn't say. And then here, you know, 1-0 down against Huddersfield. Just a, a very... Uh, unfortunate individual error or a boneheaded individual error depending on how much you want to criticize uh, human footballers for making mistakes in their (laughs) in their craft Uh, that had them behind and I'm not sure there was a huge sense that they were going to come roaring back here but they did and it was Kiefer Moore at the double what a man and what a player he is who's had a tough start to the season for a number of of reasons both health wise and I suppose uh, through no fault of his own with the the team that he's been playing for Um, so it's four points from three games for for Morrison it's better than what they had before looking at it overall I'm sure and I've seen a couple of calls from Cardiff fans understandable that this is someone who particularly knows a lot of the under 23 players and and Cardiff have more under 23 type players um, in and around the first team than most teams in the championship at the moment, which is exciting. We saw Isaac Davis, the, the latest to sort of catch the eye with a really good assist for, for Kiefer Moore's winners. And I love how many under 23s are getting minutes and it'll be hugely valuable if the next manager is someone who can turn, let's say, out of the group of Colwell, Davis, Evans, Brown, Sang, Bowen, Bagan and Harris, these are all players under 21 or 21 and under who have got first team minutes this season. If even three or four of the seven or eight of them become first team contributors, that will be really exciting for Cardiff. It will save the club a lot of money. So I think that has to be uh, a big priority for, for those who are running the club. But of course, short term, they have to reach a level where they can get themselves away from the relegation zone. I'm not convinced based on what I've seen that outside the normal stuff, by which I mean post-manager sacking, extra energy and some extra motivation. I'm not sure outside of that, which in my eyes doesn't last very long, certainly doesn't last forever, as we saw when Mick McCarthy first took charge of Cardiff. I'm not sure outside of that there's a huge amount that suggests that they are a significantly better football team. And that's why I think you know, maybe you give it another few games of Morrison just to, just to give him a fair crack of the whip. But equally, if there was someone who was interviewing well, who was on the shortlist and ticked a lot of the boxes, then because it's international break, maybe it's the time to pull the trigger. Uh, Outside of Flynn uh, and Morrison, again, in terms of the betting odds, there's not a huge suggestion as to who that might be. So it's a very, very interesting one. And it's a a big appointment as well. Uh, Two notables from the Huddersfield perspective. Disappointing this. I, I actually I was on the Huddersfield YouTube channel's match preview for this, which I really enjoyed with uh, Lewis O'Brien, their dynamic midfield player. And I mentioned the fact that the goal they conceded against Posh in midweek, which was right at the death, a game they should have won and they were winning, was a, a left wing cross from Burroughs onto the head of Johnson Clark Harris, who was at the back post and notably challenging for the ball with the young defender Levi Colwell who is insanely talented, brilliant ball player, very good defensive um, qualities as well. But Clark Harris got above him, uh, strength and height, and headed home. And I mentioned the fact that Cardiff's main threat 
was Ryan Giles' delivery and Kiefer Moore's aerial presence. Now, Giles didn't get either assist, but Moore scored both headed goals and both of them, Colwell was the nearest defender to him. So it's that balance between having someone who has rare quality, who I've no doubt will play at the very, very top level, who's been a brilliant loan signing and also trying to mitigate against the fact that against certain championship strikers with a certain skill set, Colwell's going to have to you know, develop his game as all 18-year-old centre-backs will. Um, the only other thing I'd mention is Hogg and Holmes started in midweek against Posh. Both came off injured in that game. Not badly enough, clearly. They both started this one and they both had to come off in the first half, uh, presumably with recurrence of those injuries. And that doesn't reflect too well on the on the team selection, does it? In hindsight, um, you never know what goes on behind the scenes and what goes into these decisions. But clearly for Corbrand, that's one that doesn't look great, starting two players who'd come off injured in midweek who then come off in the, in the first half. Uh, and I, I'd love to know what's happening with Josh Caroma who's finding it very difficult to start games at the moment, despite the fact that we know at his best, and particularly with Toffolo overlapping him down the left side, he could be their number one goal threat, which is something they're lacking in open play. But whatever, for whatever reason, he's not really involved, certainly not from the start at the moment. You've got Sinani, who has one goal and one assist in however many games this season. Holmes, who's an energetic, versatile player with quality, but not really impacting games in terms of goals and assists as well. I'd like to know a little bit more about what's happening with Josh Caroma. There we go with some Cardiff and Huddersfield thoughts. One of the most interesting games, uh, certainly to look back on, George, I think, is Blackburn 3, Sheffield United 1. For reasons that we'll get into for both sides, it's an interesting one. But let's start with Blackburn, the victors, and Tony Mowbray, uh, who lost 7-0 at home on Wednesday, with the caveat that they were down to 10 men early on, and they were playing against one of the best attacking teams we've ever seen at this level. Uh, they had a lot to respond to, and they did so here, coming from behind to beat Blades 3-1. Yeah, it's been a bit of a tough week for Mowbray. <clears throat> you know, obviously losing a game 7-0 at home is under no circumstances in the league acceptable, uh, even if there are circumstances around it, such as the red card that, that do change the outlook on the game. Um it, it feels to me like the relationship between quite a lot of Blackburn fans and Tony Mowbray broke about a year ago, maybe 18 months ago. And it's just going to constantly be a cycle of when he's doing okay, they're quiet. And as soon as things turn, the pressure is immediately on him to, to make it improve. Because I personally don't think his job should be under scrutiny unless you are pinning the lack of depth on the squad squarely with him, which would be totally unfair. I had a bit Going of blowback earlier when... after my defence of him last week. So just to let you know what I got on social media, which to be fair, I hadn't quite realised the extent of and certainly didn't mention when I was backing him against that rather condescending phrase, he's taken the club as far as he can, which had attracted my ire. That There was a mention of this season particularly, I think it's three or four times in the league, they've thrown away 2-0 leads and failed to win games. That seems to be, this that, season at least, one of the things that's really winding people up. Fine. I mean, that it's just football. They're, they're seventh. They've won seven out of their 17 games. I mean, if you're going to point at that as being the issue, then I would say that he's the person that, who, in, who is in charge of a squad who just should not be seventh in the table, in my opinion. You look at the you look at the tape. So you look at the lineup from Saturday's games because of the injury issues they've got, and because of the lack of strength and depth. There's no way that side should be beating Sheffield United at home, and not a chance. You look at the midfield. You know they've got Davenport and Travis at centre midfield, Kadra and, and Ian Pavedo on the wing. Three of those players have played very very little football this season. Scott Wharton's had to come in at centre back. 
who hasn't played very much football at all. Buckley's a, a youth team player who's been promoted pretty quickly into now a, a pretty starring role. You, you compare the 11 now compared to the 11 12 months ago, the, the dip in quality in terms of the players they've got at their disposal is massive. And that is something that he hasn't overseen. It's it's an inability of the, you know, going back to what I said earlier in the podcast, a lot of Blackburn fans will say, well, that's Mowbray's fault. I don't think it is Mowbray's fault. You know, there's been a, for whatever reason, he hasn't been supported in the same way by the recruitment team as he was at the beginning of last season. So it, it's an amazing recovery. And his, you know, I, I saw in the press um, in the week, that his reaction to the 7-0 defeat attracted a lot of anger from Blackburn fans. And I can see why. You know, he very much went with the defend his team and questioned the commitment of the fans' approach. And I think he probably did that knowing that he has got a fair bit to win over in terms of the fans anyway. And I saw a lot of Blackburn fans saying it was pathetic and you know how dare he criticise them and, and all of this stuff. But the reaction was there. You know, over the course of the of the two games against two sides who were playing Premier League football last season, they picked up three points. With when they've had eleven men on the pitch, they've been fine. It was just a horrible circumstantial collapse against a team who are going to score four, five, six goals against a few teams this season. So, and I, and I know that you did this last week and it was followed up by a seven 0 defeat, which was unfortunate. But I think <laughs> it, it 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 did feel to me it, like. A bad result here could have seen Tony Mowbray lose his job. And I think from a completely footballing point of view, I'm really happy because I think there, if I was to make a list of the 24 championship managers in order of the job that they're doing, Tony Mowbray in my book would be way closer to the top than the bottom. And I think a few Rovers fans maybe need to step back and just have a look at the side, have a look at the team that he's having to put out at the moment. And realise that it's an overachievement to have them where they are and to beating, you know, you compare the 11 with what Slavica Kanovic had at his disposal on Saturday. It's, you know, it's chalk and cheese. Mm. It certainly is. I, one of my favourite responses to my defence of Mowbray last week was someone who, in fairness, I don't think he had heard it. I think he was replying to someone who had heard it, uh, saying he's probably the same as all the other members of the media who just want to defend Mowbray because he's a proper football man. And I, and I tweeted ha, him back amazing. to say, if you're claiming ignorance about what I said about Mowbray, I'm going to have to make this 1-1 because if you think that I spend much of my time defending the honour of proper football men, then you've obviously amazing. never heard anything I've ever done. Uh, anyway. You, you, you famously hate proper football men, so. Well, no, I just <laughs> don't really care. I don't really care about that. that as a thing. Anyway, let's talk about their opponents, Sheffield United, because of course... You know, just just, just quickly, just, I was having a look when he said that. That was Davenport's first start of the season. That was Kadra's first start of the season. And that was Wharton's first start mm. of the season. Like, he's doing a great job. Sorry. They beat Sheffield United. Now, uh, on the flip side, United uh, fans have had a tough few days since this one. Um, uh, Brewster's goal was brilliant, of course, and that would have been... Uh, some moment for the travelling fans. Many of them, dare I say it, probably weren't actually in their seats at that point, even if they, they wouldn't admit it. Um, I enjoyed the, the feat of Kadra, the skill for his goal. I'd love to see him settle, mm. uh, find a place in this side and, and do more of that. Whether there is a place for him in this side with a player like Rothwell, who's also got a similar sort of um, technical ability and thrust in, dare I say, a pos- an area of the pitch that Kadra might be challenging for, I don't know. But um, a good option for Mowbray to have if he can settle. Um, but United, Sheffield United, Georgia, got 19 points from their 17 games and they're 18th in the table. 
those numbers aren't good enough for any club coming down from the Premier League. Uh, now, they're not the first time we've seen a club coming down from the Premier League suffer from this mixture of relegation hangover versus new manager, old squad versus recruitment problems versus motivation problems versus all sorts of stuff, right? Um, so I want to ask you what your current thoughts are on the, on the state of things with Blades. We've mentioned even before the season started that we thought there was a good chance Sheffield United under Slav started slowly and came on very strong. And that's partly because that's what Slav, Visa, Jokanovic's teams, uh, Watford and Fulham have done in the last few times he has managed at this level. Now, we're kind of, we're following that path, right? They've started quite poorly. And I guess my question to you is, to what extent are you bullish that this was not always going to happen, but that the next part will definitely happen too. Because I know amongst the fan base, there's a huge split at the moment between how, well, A, with the question, how bad is it right now? And B, sub-question, how confident are we that Slav is the man to, to be at the helm to make sure it turns around? It's so difficult because, you know, if I go back to that list I was just talking about a second ago, <laughs> Slav would probably be bottom or second bottom. There's, there's no denying that their, their start, of this season has been an abomination compared to where they should be. Um, it is not good enough. You know, I talk about the the players that Tony Mowbray has at his disposal. You know, you, you look at conversely, look at Sheffield United squad. It is an embarrassment of riches that they can put out a bench to, of which every single player would probably start for Blackburn. Yet they're going there and they're getting beat. Um, There's quite and a lot of guys in consistently. there. I would say. I don't know if this is has merit or not. I'm just going to say it. As I thought it. There's quite a lot of guys in there <laughs> who we now look at and say, you, you've had two years of Premier League football, you should be doing better than this at Championship level. But the whole reason they were Premier League players in the first place really, realistically came down, not taking anything away from their performances, to Chris Wilder I would agree. and how he transformed yeah. that team. And I wonder if there's a risk that for a chunk of this side, we now <laughs> overrate what they're able to do at this level because of what they did in that one season under Wilder. Interesting. I reckon there are definitely a couple where that's the case. I, I take your point. But, you know, you look at the bench, the, the three players that came on, Lise Mousse, George Baldock, and Ndai, you'd think would probably all three of them walk into that Rovers team. And then you've got Conor Harrigan, whose qualities we know. You've got Ollie McBurney, again, whose qualities we know. Um, Wes Fodringham, the sub-keeper, fine. And Jack Robinson, who maybe not. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's still... A lot of players whose qualities still... we know across the whole squad, but we're not seeing definitely which is the map which probably comes down to the manager if you're not able to get out um a performance level from from players who are proven elsewhere uh so with slav i would be if, if we knew nothing about him if slav's name was vladimir ivich i'd be saying get rid you know you've got to you've got you've got to move on this hasn't worked he's not good enough but when when you've got a guy who's got that there is sufficient evidence there that not only is he able of creating a very good team but he's able of he's able to create the best championship team both in terms of when they're good they are they wipe the floor with everybody but not only that but in both jobs he's had previously this exact thing has happened he's always he, he started badly and with Fulham it lasted about a year with with Watford it was much quicker then there's enough there that you've got if, if you just step back take all emotion out of it and you look at the patterns you know, you look at managerial patterns, managerial arcs. We are right at the beginning of where Slav has been twice before. And both times that ended up with 
big winning runs in Premier League football. So if I was a, a Sheffield United fan, I would have to probably begrudgingly just say, right, we're probably not going to go up this season. We've got enough quality not to go down. If if that changes, then maybe we make a, we make a change. But otherwise, you know, we're not going to be able to recruit somebody with a better track record than this guy who's done this before, who's made this poor start before. So let's just sit back, accept it, hope that somehow we can get on a good run soon to to make the playoffs attainable this season. But otherwise, build for a year and hopefully it clicks sooner rather than later. I think that has to be the standpoint. You'd be, I think you'd be foolish to, to hire Slavica Kanovic then sack him two and a half months into a bad run. I mean, such is the nature of the dense loaf, the seeded batch of, of championship mid-table and the, and the size of it, that if they have anything like a Jokanovic at Fulham run or anything like a Jokanovic at Watford run, like they will still make the playoffs. That is, you know, the, the, it's a classic case of what I spoke about when we first talked about the seeded batch last week. And dare I say it, Blackburn are enjoying the opposite of it now, which is Blackburn lost 7-0 at home in midweek. Then they've won 3-1 at home on the weekend and they're level on points with the team in sixth. That's going to be the headline. We're level on points with the team in sixth. Mm. Sheffield United are 18th in the table, but they're not that far away from Blackburn. And I just think that looking at the pure league positions is just scrambling fans' brains at the moment and to an extent my brain as well. So let's move on. I'll tell you a bit about Luton nil Stoke 1 because I had the pleasure of being at Kenilworth Road for this one and it was a fantastic uh, afternoon. I was very well looked after, uh, as I have been both times I've been to Luton this season, and I had a great time. And they have um, some very tasty beers on offer, and <laughs> it's just a it's just a good place to watch Championship football. Uh, the game itself, and you'll see why I just praised Luton for their hospitality. The match itself was poor, George. It wasn't a good game of, of Championship football, and really I should have seen it coming because this was three at the back versus three at the back, three five two versus three five two on what is quite a small pitch, or at least it definitely feels small. Maybe that's because the, the stadium itself is relatively small for the level. So there wasn't a lot of space. There wasn't a huge amount of time on the ball. The wing-backs are crucial for entertainment in a game like this. And none of the four really had licence to thrill. I think all four of them, to an extent, were more worried about being goal side of their opposite man than, than getting beyond him and delivering. So what we saw was not a classic. But there was one moment of, of real quality, and, and that was the winning goal uh, in the first half from Stoke, where Tommy Smith played a nice pass, uh, sort of chip ball down the line. Sawyers ran into the space that was uh, out on that side, uh, sauntered, ball. sauntered into the space as Sawyers does. And then, you know, you talked about a team's breathtaking attacking play. Sawyers' assist took my breath away because, George, I've watched a lot of Romain Sawyers, and so have you. Mm. He almost always takes a touch before doing anything. He just loves mm. the feel of the football at his feet, and we love watching that. And the fact that he looked up, realised Brown was streaking in behind the defence and actually fired it across first time, it was so unlike what I'd expect from Sawyers. He's the sort of player that might slow it down in that position and, and recycle or, or try and find something different. So it was a brilliant ball across and tapped in by Jacob Brown, who has just been called up uh, from the by the Scottish national team for the first time. A very proud moment. And who was there to watch him score the winner here? You. Steve Clark, Scotland manager. Uh, you too, though. And me. <laughs> and me. <laughs> one fully Scottish person and one 
sort of Scottish person uh, enjoyed his performance. He, he was brilliant, I must say. I mean, Fletcher is, is great uh, to play up front with, I think, because he's so happy to drop in um, and he's happy to take a few bumps. But Brown is this really nice all-round striker that's that's developed in front of our eyes over the last few years from being a kind of goal-scoring wide man at Barnsley. And it, it's testament to the development that Stoke have, have given him because... He's kind of two strikers in one in a way that often strikers are kind of less than one striker in one, by which I mean he, he presses and harries with, with up there with the best of them. His his speed is incredible and his stamina, he just he just sprints basically for the whole game. He's like a reverse Mario Vrancic. Um, he will just sprint full pelt for the whole game, doesn't seem to get tired. He's happy banging into centre-backs and, and trying to win aerial duels and flick-ons and um, smart enough to bring others into play. But then he'll also spin in behind like he did for the goal and, and try and get on the end of, of crosses and exploit any space in behind a defence. So I think he's developing really well. Uh, he's having a, a quietly a very good season. And I think it's probably mostly Stoke fans and the likes of Michael O'Neill and now Steve Clark who are starting to recognise that this is a, a really quality player who's uh, who's got a bright future and who certainly you know has his sort of development arc over the last few years is exciting because you wonder where he could go from here. Uh, he was the best player on the pitch for me and I was glad to see him. I, I should shout out Stoke centre-backs who um, dealt with Adebayo and Cornick very well. They've been brilliant this season, haven't they? But Bart particularly was very physical with Cornick early on and kind of put him off, I think. Um, and, and Stoke's midfield, I mean, it was a gritty midfield battle, but I would say they edged it. Um, Allen and Sawyers particularly had that extra quality on the ball that the, the Luton midfield three didn't have. So um, a good day out and a, a valuable win for Stoke, who are, I guess, trying to become the the crust of the seeded batch. Well, the right end, anyway, at the very top <laughs> of it um, and not doing a too bad a job in, in doing so. Coventry three, Bristol City two. George, I'm going to take a breath and you're going to tell me about this one. I was going to say it would all turn on the red card, but the red card didn't even matter in the end. Um, it was a, a very good game, a frustrating game for Bristol City, who would have fancied their chances to win it after putting away a penalty to go 1-0 up through Chris Martin after Ian uh, Mateson was, was sent off for a, a little tug, a, a very little tug, I would say, on Callum O'Dowda. It was one of those where I didn't think live it was necessarily a red card until I, you know, he didn't really complain, which... Um, he kind of held out a hand. I think Odada felt the slightest of touches and went down. Fair enough. Uh, got the penalty. Bristol City go 1-0 up. And you think from there it's going to be a difficult one for um, for Coventry to, to get anything from. But massive credit to them because this wasn't really a game um, for anybody who was watching that felt like it was 10 against 11. Because um, despite the whole second half being played with, with 10 men, Coventry were good value for their win. You know, they, they, they drew level with a... Um, with a Matty Godden penalty, and Andy Vyman put Bristol City back ahead with a very, very rare foray forwards. And then it was all Coventry putting the pressure on. Callum O'Hare finally getting his first goal of the season, having taken more shots than any other player in the Championship without scoring. It was a brilliant finish into the bottom left-hand corner after a knockdown from a from a corner. And then such a great finish from Matty Godden for, for, the, for the winner. Um, a, a lovely little ball that threw down the right channel to Liam Kelly, from Liam Kelly to Godden, and Godden hitting a first-time right-footer finish across the keeper into the bottom left-hand corner, pinpoint, um, and sending the commentary fans absolutely jubilant. This, you know, was this a, a massive performance and a big win from 10-man commentary, or was this a capitulation from Bristol City? I, I think it was both. I think Nigel Pearson, who, you know, we wish him all the best. He wasn't at the game. Um, you know, he missed a couple of games a couple of months ago due to having COVID, um, and it was 
poor health that meant he missed that one. We don't know whether it was whether it was complications with with his COVID infection or whatever, but he wasn't here um, at the game. We wish him all the best for the future. We don't know if that had an impact on this, um, but certainly from Bristol City's point of view, the inability to manage the game from one 0 up and from two 0 up two one up, I should say, against ten men, really poor. You know, to be basically the worst side up against ten men. Um, even when you're ahead, is is not really acceptable in a in a league game. But for Coventry, they they just didn't let it bother them. They were energetic. They played on the front foot. They continued to to keep attacking, and were able to be very solid defensively. So, this is a big big win for Kov. I think this is another one, especially after the loss at home to to, to Swansea. Given how good their home record's been this season, for them to put on that showing with ten men in the second half, for Matty Godden to get two, for O'Hare to break his duck of the season. Uh, feels like that could be a bit of a watershed, watershed game for them in order to not, you know, if they'd, they hadn't won that game, it would have been one win in the last six. Um, but they get the three points and uh, in, in pretty dramatic circumstances as well in front of their home fans. You've summed up everything I was going to say about the game. Although, even though I'm generally the, the polite one, I think, out of the two of us, my notes about Bristol City were a lot less polite than how you summed it all up. Uh, a bit stronger <laughs> than that. I didn't I, think I, I was very nice at all. cannot. I just... I'm fuming and I have no skin in the game. Genuinely, I think that is embarrassing to be ahead twice against 10 men and lose the game, even if you are away from home against a a confident side with a a group of fans giving it big guns, as Coventry's fans are at the moment. I think it's genuinely embarrassing to do that from a footballing perspective. And any discussion about it being harder to play against 10 men is uh, complete nonsense as well. So uh, I'm very concerned about Bristol City. I I spoke about them on the betting show. I think their performances are are pretty desperate. Nothing that happened on Saturday has me thinking any differently, that's for sure. Uh, Unlike Nottingham Forest, who beat Preston 3-0, just wonderful, wonderful vibes at the city ground at the moment. And it's great to see, uh, I must say, since Steve Cooper was appointed, uh, only Fulham and Bournemouth, Georgia, picked up more points. Uh, he's hitting the, the two points per game mark. It's still early days. It's still small sample size. Um, they are by no means asserting a level of, of technical or attacking dominance on, on their opposition compared to those two teams in Fulham and Bournemouth. But it's really good stuff. And, and this was a good, solid home win. Um where they took the lead in the first half. I should start with the fact that Cooper switched away from a three-at-the-back system. Um, We we saw his Swansea side establish themselves playing three-at-the-back and then Cooper move away from that towards the end of last season in order to try and get a change in performance level. So he's someone who tactically is not wedded to one particular system. Um, From from my perspective, from a neutral's perspective, taking out a centre-back and popping in an attacking player, which means you have a a three of Mighton, Zinkenagel and Brennan Johnson behind Graben is uh, pretty exciting. And it worked well. Johnson, the star for me. And I know that there's probably, a, there's probably a risk, George, that we've spoken so much about Brennan Johnson since the start of last season when he was brilliant on loan at Lincoln. I think there's a chance we're taking him for granted and we're taking these mm, performances for granted up a level. He's he was ca- superb. He's carrying himself like he thinks he's the best player in the division, which is <laughs> exactly what you want from a player in his position. He wins penalties more than any other player in the EFL, I'm confident in saying, without the stats in front of me. Sometimes, sure, going down a little too easily, sometimes genuinely being fouled. And it's the it's the, the speed that he has, the way that he covers ground and his technical ability, that mixture makes it so difficult. Um, and his... And his work rate, you know, the way he won that penalty was, was by taking a gamble and by flinging himself onto a loose ball and getting in the way of a, of a Whiteman clearance and winning a penalty. It's so valuable. It's not as exciting as when he 
bursts down the wing, carries it into the box and, and and goes over a leg, an outstretched leg. But it's so valuable for his team and particularly because Nottingham Forest managed the game so well from the moment they went ahead here. Um, it was a sweet, stra- uh, sweet strike. It was a sweet strike from Jack out of the cold back, as I'm calling him. Nice. Jack no longer left back. No longer left back. Out of the cold back, keeping... Uh, the next Manchester United superstar, James Garner, out of the side back. Um, sweet strike from him for 2-0 uh, and grab and scored in the second half for 3-0. I think the thing for me that stands out really, because, you know, it was a penalty, it was a, a volley from a set piece that was headed away and then it was a, a third goal in the second half. Going forward, still plenty to do for, for Forrest. Good signs, but plenty to do. The fact that having gone ahead, you know, North End had 65% possession in the second half but they only had one blocked shot to show for it. And that speaks to good organisation, good structure, which, you know, with a, a change of formation, it might you might think there'd be a, a bit of time to get used to it, but not at all. They were brilliant out of possession, Forest. They deserve this win. Four academy graduates in the first 11 as well. That's, that's kind of the dream for, for most championship football fans. So uh, I'm hopeful there's plenty still to come. There's, there's no guarantee that it lasts forever, um, but they could barely have made a better start under Stu- Steve Cooper. And I am loving it. It didn't escape some Reading fans' attention, George, that we both picked Birmingham to beat them over the weekend. And when Birmingham went 1-0 up at the weekend, we probably thought that Birmingham would beat Reading. But Reading beat Birmingham 2-1 from behind. I want to say a star is born, but I don't want to put too much pressure on an 18-year-old striker. (laughs) A jar is opened. (laughs) Jamari Clark. (laughs) The door is Jamari. The door is a Jamari. Um... Yeah, I mean, incredible for him. Um, this was his 10th time coming off the bench for Reading this season and yet to find the net. We've spoken so often about how the, the lack of Lucas Rao has been a, a big issue for uh, for Reading because George Pushkas isn't up to it. This was um, the earliest that Clark had been introduced and, and wow, did he repay the faith from uh, Vyko Paunovic. From the isolating uh, Paunovic, who was yeah, making his decisions second. and his team talks over Zoom. An amazing second half performance. I think when Scott Hogan put um, Birmingham one up after three minutes, it felt like a case of how many. To be honest, um, you know, we had lots of discourse from Reading fans in the week telling us how they agreed with our betting pick of, of, of Birmingham. Pretty often, when we hear from fans of, of clubs we've opposed in the betting show, it is, it is not that line um, that they come out with. It's normally saying, "What are you on about? You don't know what you're talking about." I, I can't really remember going into a game where it felt like everybody all neutrals watching on just anticipated a regulation home win. Uh, but Clark comes off the bench and changes the game with two smart finishes. Um, you know, it was a pretty end-to-end game. I don't think Reading necessarily, it's a classic away win. Well, you know, it wasn't like Reading dominated. It wasn't like Reading were, the, were by far the better team. They took their chances better than, than Birmingham did, who were the home side. Um, it, it's yet another occasion where I think Birmingham had more than enough about them to, to get at least a point and they've ended up coming away with nothing. So I think Lee Bowyer will continue to feel aggrieved that his side don't get the rub of the green. Um, and for Reading, it's yet another game where I think they probably easily come, could have come away with nothing and they've come away with three points. But they have a knack of doing that and that is what's going to make sure that they are well clear of the, the relegation places um, and will continue to have aspirations to to be higher up the, the um the table. I mean, John Swift was probably the class player on the pitch again. No surprise there. That guy is playing uh, a too lower level, both in terms of, of where he should be in the championship and probably shouldn't even be in this league at all. First thing you, you notice about Jamari Clark, same with Coburn 
playing up top for Burroughs that is the size of him height-wise. Mm. Uh, and his goal was like a sort of seasoned EFL striker's headed goal. If you watch the build-up, he's occupying two defenders in the middle. Um, he makes a little run across the front of Mark Roberts, who gives him a little bump but doesn't knock him off stride at all. And then he gets up and directs the header really well into the net. The, the second goal, more persistence than anything, wasn't it? But amazing to see the smile on his face, uh, giving a bit back to the Birmingham fans who had given him a bit of stick while he was warming up as well. It was absolute fairy tale stuff. And, uh, you know, heading into the, an international break that Reading desperately needed injuries-wise and, dare I say it, form-wise, with three points makes a, a big difference. Year Dom getting all the plaudits as well outside of Clark. He was absolutely unbelievable in this game. Uh, and for Blues, you know, they'll point to the fact that they had Mitch Roberts and Marcel Oakley starting, um, very young players. So maybe focusing on Reading's injury issues was not entirely fair. Blues have their own, of course. Um, but they also had chances. Deeney, two headers. One hit the post, one he, he didn't quite connect. And and that meant the day belonged to Clark. And Reading, 2-1 uh, all draws. Blackpool won. QPR won. was cracking atmosphere. Got, uh, Sky game. Um, Bloomfield Road is a place to watch football at the moment. That's absolutely true. And, and they looked excellent, Blackpool, from the first minute. Uh, should have gone ahead. I, I, I'm a little bit sympathetic with the referee and the linesman for disallowing the, the goal that Medine tapped in because he, he was offside. And you can understand why that would be the first question. You know, the fact that the ball was two inches over the line is, is a lot harder to ascertain. Uh, and, you know, the fact that he's gone for it, he's almost not helped himself there. There'd, there'd, there'd be a part of me that'd be quite annoyed that Medine even went for that as the ball was heading in, but that's how strikers are. Um, Medine obviously got the penalty to equalise after Willock scored a brilliant individual effort from range. Um, what a nice player he is. But I just can't help but read messages like the one from Lee, who's a QPR fan in our NTT20 squad, who called Blackpool the best team he has seen QPR play this season outside of Fulham and Bournemouth. I can't help but look at their performances and I can't help George that remember how much better they got last season as the season went on. You know, how poor performances became medium performances and then quite quickly good performances and then by the end of the season just brilliant performances and so consistent as well. Um, and I'm wondering if that's translatable to a championship season. Um, maybe, maybe. I'm enjoying it anyway. And then Millwall won, Derby won. Was the the draw between the league's drawiest teams who drew the biggest draw <laughs> that's ever been drawn. Uh, and that's the end of the championship roundup. FA Cup first round, George, it's, a, it's kind of a tough one for us to position ourselves on because uh, for League One and League Two clubs, the first round, particularly League One clubs, it's a bit of a lose-lose this. Like, you're now, you're the giants that are there to be killed. Um, and so, you know, progression, depending on who it's against, is kind of expected. And you just don't want to be the ones who are on the wrong ends of the headlines. As it was, that was Forest Green Rovers, uh, who on Sunday were the uh, the giants that got killed uh, by St Albans. Uh, brilliant, brilliant atmosphere at St Albans. A 3-2 win, fascinating cup tie. And the winning goal scored by Sean Jeffers, who has 14 goals in 10 in the Vanarama South. Uh, and fans of Coventry, where he came through, of Peterborough, Newport, Cheltenham. You might remember Sean Jeffers. He had spells with a few EFL clubs early on in his career. Absolute bagsman this season for St Albans, who are sponsored by the band Enter Shikari, which I love. Mm. Um, sort of very random, but very nice. Do you love Enter Shikari? No. But I think it's a bit Larry for you. bit Larry, exactly. 
Most of the fun, though, was between non-league teams, so we're not going to dwell too much. I just want to mention the, the Buxton story. Uh, they beat York City. Uh, Buxton are in the seventh tier of English football, and the best part of this was, and I'm not joking when I tell you, Buxton's manager was sacked a few days before this cup tie because he went on holiday this weekend and it was a family holiday and it had been three, four, five times delayed as many have been because of COVID. And he was like, A, I want to go on holiday and B, I'm just going to lose loads of money if I don't and I don't want to lose loads of money. Remember, this is a part-time club and you can absolutely understand his, his perspective. And the club's perspective was that they needed him, so they sacked him and the new manager oversaw a win against York City. So... Um, that must have been an interesting weekend for the former manager. And the entertainment was at, at Halifax. They beat uh, Maidenhead 7-4. They're managed by Pete Wilde, who you might remember, uh, had a few caretaker spells in charge of Oldham a few years ago. There was one thing we wanted to touch on before we go. Um, next week's show will obviously be League 1, League 2 focused after the weekend action with the championship stopping for an international break. There's one or two bits of bobs to clear up uh, and a wider conversation that comes off the back of one of them. George, we'll, we'll, we'll get stuck into it. Dave Challoner, the former Hartlepool United manager who took them into League Two and has them, or had them, in the top half of League Two, uh, has joined Stockport County, who are in the National League. And this was, I think it's fair to say, the latest thing to happen in a line of things that have got you and I talking about sort of kind of general concerns about the functionality of the pyramid, which is a sort of stupid way of saying, we think there's going to be, uh, there could be a sort of day of reckoning coming, to use a very dramatic phrase, when it comes <laughs> to the National League and, and League Two in the way that things might be heading there. Could you expand on what the main concerns are, why we're talking about this? Yeah, I, I, it's not healthy to have a structure where it's becoming more and more common from like a very base level, more and more common for the, for the league below to be able to recruit from the leagues above. I mean, th the reason for that is probably a good thing in terms of the leagues that we cover. It's because, you know, in the EFL, there are more stringent financial regulations towards how a club can be run. But what that also means is that you have owners who are rich and want to buy a football club and want to throw money at a football club. Well, would you either buy a Harrogate Town or would you buy an AFC Wrexham where, one, you are able to flex your financial muscles much more, in the short term at least, than you are able to if you went in and bought a League Two club? It's an issue for a lot of reasons. Now, I love the National League. I hated Oxford being in non-league as long as they were. But at the same time, probably some of my happiest memories of being an Oxford fan were, were going on away days to, to non-league clubs. There is a, a an amazing um, community spirit down there and the league itself deserves a lot of love and I wish you and I had more time to, to follow and cover it. Um, but there is a, an issue in terms of competitive balance that will arise from this. And it's something that I kind of alluded to. I tweeted about it last week where, you know, we already live in a world where if you're promoted from the national league, no team that's ever been promoted from the national national league have gone back on to non-league the season after. So no team has been promoted from the conference has been relegated from the lowest league of the EFL the season after. That is weird. You know, when you look at how regularly teams who are, who are promoted to the Premier League are relegated, if you look at how regularly teams who are promoted from League One are relegated, even, not as much, but even sometimes from League Two to League One, the same is the case. Now, that in itself isn't necessarily a good thing and you want competitive balance, but 
it seems quite clear that there is not very much between the bottom half of League Two and the top half of, of the National League. That in itself is okay. That's fine. And it's probably to be expected given there are only two relegation spots from um, League Two, especially given the financial difficulties of a lot of those clubs. You know, you, you only have to look back two seasons to when Stevenage were relegated, but then were reprieved because of two clubs basically having to, to fold. Um, which which enabled them to stay in the in the league. Um, but the issue is, if this continues, if these clubs are able to continue to basically pay more money and recruit from above, then quite quickly that does become an issue. Now, do you solve this by introducing another relegation and promotion slot from the National League to League Two? It, it would definitely help. But you're not going to get um, the EFL clubs voting in favour of that, I wouldn't have thought. And I think it should be, you know, given one is non-league ones at the EFL, it should be difficult to get in and out. Yeah, I agree with the the financial staff. I know that they have voted in July uh, in the National League to introduce a salary cap from the 22-23 season, which I hadn't been aware of. Mm. The the reported figures uh, I couldn't find, but uh, they have voted in a salary cap. And maybe, maybe we're overreacting to this season, how egregious it's been. Um, particularly with Wrexham, um, but also uh, I know that Stockport are spending a lot of money as well, Chesterfield too. But the, the very fact of two up, two down must be causing a bottleneck. Like, were I able to wave a magic wand and go three up, three down, I truly believe that within three, four, five years, things would be evened out to an extent which they just yeah. can't be at yeah, the yeah. moment. Because bad teams stay up in League Two, we always say it, and good teams don't go up in the National League. And I think it's just causing a problem. But as you say, well, we come back to the fact that for something like that to happen, EFL clubs would have to vote on it, which doesn't seem ideal. But guess what? No one wants the EFL themselves to have autonomy to make these decisions themselves. That would cause uproar because EFL owners own businesses and they wouldn't... But, yeah, I'd also be intrigued to know. I think the um, the longevity and the sustainability of some EFL clubs are maintained by their EFL membership. And... <sighs> By having National League clubs who are being bankrolled to a higher level, if you were to open it up further, could lead to a lot of financial pain for locally owned clubs who don't have that cash, if that makes sense. You know, if you take, if you look at the bottom end, you know, Carlisle um, are being one, Scunthorpe are quite clearly another. Relegation into non-league is going to provide them with some existential questions at the very least. Um, I mean, we are not experts in this, but... You look at the National League as well, it's... It's basically two different divisions now. Mm. There's the there's the it used to be professional clubs and the semi-professional clubs. And then the number of professional club clubs has grown, and now there's like even more subsets with the wealthy professional clubs whose owners are throwing money at it, the professional clubs and the semi-professional clubs. And it's quite clear just looking at the table really now that there are large chunks of teams that really have very little in common with each other and it, it, it's yeah it's a it's a great division but it's a strange division and uh, you know for those of you who who haven't followed this too closely the most egregious example which is is probably the first time we started talking about this in the summer was Paul Mullin joining Wrexham Paul Mullin scored over 30 goals for Cambridge in League Two last season Cambridge were promoted to League One as you can imagine Cambridge United we understand made a very attractive offer within their own wage structure to make Paul Mullin a very key member of their team in League One, a division that he had never cracked before. He was also offered, we are led to believe, a lot of very lucrative contracts 
probably, knowing Cambridge's place in the League One food chain, more lucrative contract offers than Cambridge were able to offer him by League One clubs with loftier aspirations than Cambridge's own um, League One aspirations this season. For Paul Mullins to have joined Wrexham in the league below where he was playing last season, that was kind of the first red flag, right? They obviously signed Aaron Hayden from Carlisle as well. Um, there are other examples over the summer transfer window of players dropping down and it looking a little unusual, shall we say. I guess that the Challenger, the Challenger one is also tough to understand from a purely footballing perspective. There might be other contexts at play. Sometimes it's about geography and, and where you want to be for your family life. And those are very difficult for us to, to sort of second guess and certainly not for us to judge. But Stockport County are one of those teams who we know are being bankrolled very, very strongly. And as you have mentioned, because it's currently something of a financial wild west in the National League, are not being as uh, restricted in their spending as, as League Two and League One clubs. And, and that's helping to cause this slightly strange imbalance. So um, hopefully the salary cap that's being imposed next season will um, make a big difference. And, and hopefully that's why we're just seeing a one-off year of certain teams realising we, we've got to spend now because we can't next year and there's only one automatic spot. So let's make sure it's us. Um, the good news is, George, in the National League, Boreham Wood are top, um, Bromley are fourth, uh, Halifax are fifth, Solihull are sixth. You've got Grimsby and Knotts as well, who are obviously bigger former football league clubs who, as far as I know, aren't, aren't spending on quite the same level. So a bit like in the EFL, you know, the spending alone is not equating to points picked up on the pitch, which is great. That's exciting. But we just wanted to flag up something that's uh, that's been on our minds recently. Is that fair to say? Mm. Yeah, it's important. You know, it's important to look at this because um, it's a bit of an elephant in the room, let's say. I mean, I've had a lot of, I don't know, you've had a lot of people coming over to me being like, have you interviewed Ryan Reynolds? I'm like, yeah, we, we don't we don't cover non-league. Mm. Um, but maybe if they do get promoted, we'll have some hard-hitting questions for Ryan and Rob. I think it's a fascinating discussion. It's one that we've we've tried to have uh, in the last 15 minutes or so. Uh, and it's one that we will open up to the floor. Uh, what do you guys think? League 2, National League questions. What are we missing? What could be sorted? What won't be sorted? Uh, how right are we to be concerned about this uh, strange relationship, strange sporting relationship, really, is what we're talking about between uh, League 2 and the National League? Um, and any thoughts about... Uh, Wrexham we won't be talking about them this season that's for sure we may not be talking about them next season either so uh, if there's nuance to, to this debate that we've missed uh, and there's every chance then please let us know and it'd be great to hear from you at NTT20pod on Twitter uh, join the NTT20 squad it's a community of EFL fans there's plenty of us on there and it is thriving uh, we've got all sorts we've got threads for each specific league um, we got so much insight and knowledge in there, match previews and reviews, players to watch, uh, general discussion as well. It, it's an amazing place to be, even if we say so ourselves. Um, it is. Uh, it does come with a, a monthly subscription fee, but you can get a two-week free trial. If you follow the link in the description of this podcast, it's also in our Twitter bio. You can join the NTT20 squad, check it out uh, and see if you like it. We hope to see you there and we hope that you'll listen to the pod on Thursday, the betting show previewing the League One and League Two weekend. But otherwise, thanks to our sponsors, Betfair. It's been great to talk to you today. Hope you've enjoyed it. Join us again next time. Go well. <laughs>